Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community practicing the way of Jesus and thirsting for the life he gives. Good morning. Happy Easter Tide. I'm so excited about this season in the life of our church because we've never done this before. We've always just celebrated Easter on Easter Sunday, but we are celebrating Easter for seven Sundays, the, the, the season of Easter Tide this year. Um, and so we're going to talk about resurrection today, but we're um, also going to talk about the context of resurrection. And the context of resurrection is death, right? Because Death is the context of resurrection. Resurrection doesn't happen apart from death. Um, and so I, I don't think that in our culture we talk about death enough, and, 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 and even in the church. And, and I understand why, because it's, it's, um, it's really hard to talk about. It is really not an easy thing to talk about. And I, I speak this morning as someone who's not arrived. I'm on the journey. I find it really hard um, to talk about death. But here's the thing. Resurrection means, the, the, the reality of the resurrection means that we can talk about death. Death is something we can talk about because resurrection has shown us that death isn't a wall, right? It's a door. It's not an end. It's a beginning. And I love how um, the liturgist Douglas McKelvey puts it. He says, death is not a period that ends a sentence. It is but a comma, a brief pause before the fuller thought unfolds into eternal life. So my hope today is to share with you a biblical framework for thinking about death, one that has been very encouraging to me. Um, and I believe that could really offer us a lot of hope. But first, what I'd like for us to do is to look at, and I'm going to invite Lydia um, up to read our passage today. We're going to look at a passage from the Gospel of Matthew. And this is Matthew's account of the empty tomb and the story of the women who were the first witnesses to the resurrection. Matthew 28 verses 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Thanks, Lydia. So what's going on here in this story? We have two Marys, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Uh, we don't know exactly who that is. There's a number of Marys in Jesus's life. Uh, but these two women were with Jesus at the cross, um, along with other women. 
um, who witnessed Jesus's crucifixion. The disciples, with the exception of John, all scattered when Jesus was arrested. And so um, they, they scattered, um, but uh, they, they didn't witness the crucifixion, but the women stayed. And they remained with Jesus actually right till the end. They would have witnessed his last word. They witnessed Jesus being put in the tomb. In fact, let's read that detail because it's really important uh, to what we're talking about today. This is from the earlier part of Matthew. He says, As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. And here's the part that I want us to notice especially. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. So these two Marys uh, witness uh, Jesus' burial and the closing of the tomb. And now... Having rested on the Sabbath, as was required by Jewish law, so it's the third day after Jesus' crucifixion, something striking happens. Well, there's an earthquake, for one thing. And an angel appears and rolls away the stone. Perhaps the earthquake was from the angel rolling away the stone. Who knows? The angel's presence is so powerful that the guards are knocked down. And I have a question for you about about what's happening in this scene. Why was the stone rolled away? Why was the stone rolled away? I mean, Jesus didn't need the stone to be rolled away, right? We we see him later showing up in a room with the disciples who are behind a locked door. They're, they're, They're hiding. They've locked the door. And Jesus appears among them, right? So, He doesn't need a stone to be rolled away from his tomb for him to exit the tomb. So why is this detail here? And why is it so important that an angel actually does the honors of rolling away the stone? Here's why. It wasn't for Jesus' sake that the stone was rolled away. It was for the women's sake. God seemed to want these women to have the personal and intimate experience of peering into the the vacated tomb themselves and and seeing with their own eyes that it was empty. It's as if behind the scenes, God is orchestrating events in such a way as to deliberately invite these women to be witnesses. Which, by the way, as a footnote, is highly ironic because women's testimony didn't hold much weight in a legal proceeding in ancient Israel. And yet... God chose these women to be his witnesses. So these uh, women are the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb, right? And they are the first eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. He appears to them as they're returning to the disciples. They bow and they cling to him and they worship him. And he speaks to them. He gives them a message. He wants them to pass along a message to the disciples. And here's what he says. Go and tell the brothers, my brothers, to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And so I want us to take just a moment to kind of unpack that message. Um, That first kind of resurrection sermon, if you will. And the first thing I want us to notice about this is that the task that they were given was not just 
to announce that Jesus had risen, right? It wasn't just to, to tell the disciples the Lord is risen. They're given a specific instruction, and the instruction is Jesus is going ahead of them to Galilee. They need to go to Galilee in anticipation of seeing him there. Now, that was a bit of a courageous message to deliver, if you think about it, because it's one thing to say, the Lord's alive, we saw him, uh, which would sound crazy enough, right? But it's another thing to say, he wants you to go ahead of him, or he wants, he's going ahead of you. He wants you to go to Galilee where he's going to meet you. Um, that's pretty specific language. There's a concrete expectation there. What if Jesus doesn't show up? What if he doesn't follow through with his promise? What if the encounter they're having with Jesus is just an illusion? You know that you have skin in the game when you say something like what these women would have said when they went to the disciples, right? That takes faith. Jesus gave them a challenging assignment, and they followed through with it. And that's the kind of disciple that I want to be. I want to be like these women. So the faith that these women have, it reminds me of the kind of faith that it takes to pray with someone. If you've ever prayed with someone for something on their behalf, uh, it's one thing to pray sort of like for someone on your own, but to pray with somebody for someone kind of takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? Because there's no guarantee that God's going to answer your prayer the way that you're hoping, right? There's no guarantee he's going to heal the illness that you're praying about or open the door to the job that this person is hoping for or that he'll answer your prayer at all. But can I share this? I am coming to believe that when we take the step of faith to pray for someone, and when they take the step of faith of receiving prayer, which is its own kind of faith, right, that God shows up in his own way. Somehow he always shows up. And and guess what? I don't have to worry about those details. I don't have to worry about the details. Well, there's something else in this message that the women deliver that I want us to to notice here. It's just one word, but it's a really important word that I think would have sounded uh, very different to the disciples than maybe when we just read this at first glance. It might not seem like a very important word. But do you notice what Jesus calls the disciples? He calls them brothers. Now, this isn't actually the first time he calls his disciples his brothers, But it's the first time he calls them brothers after his death and resurrection, right? And what did they do at his death? We just mentioned that they scattered, right? They they deserted. They went into a room and they locked the door and they hid. Peter actually publicly denied that he knew Jesus. And so uh, of the 12 disciples, only John was at the crucifixion. Only John remained. Um, And so I wonder if the disciples felt like they didn't deserve even to be called Jesus's friends. And yet, Jesus calls them brothers. And I wonder if maybe there's someone here who you're afraid that you've disappointed Jesus, or you've gone AWOL, or he just feels distant. And, and, and you don't know what you call him. Do you call him Lord? Do you call him friend? Uh, do you call him God? Uh, do you call him prophet? What do you call him? Well, he knows what he calls you. He calls you brother. He calls you brother. And so these women, as they're giving this message, it is not just a set of instructions, right, that they're giving to the, the, the disciples. They're not just communicating a flat message. 
they're actually speaking a word of healing, a word of forgiveness, and a word of new life. So let's take a moment now and step back from this story. Um, We've sort of looked at some of the details, and I want us to look at the big picture for a moment. Um, Ronald Rollheiser um, says in his book, The Passion and the Cross, that it's notable that women are principal actors in the resurrection narrative because historically women were midwives. And, And I have a quote. He says, something new is being born in the resurrection and women are the ones to attend the birth. This is a metaphor that I think uh, is worth reflecting on, not just because of what it says about women and their qualification to minister and to serve, but because of what it says about all of us. What if this is a picture, this metaphor is a picture of who we are called to be as followers of Christ? midwives. Uh, A midwife is someone who assists a woman uh, giving birth, um, who's uh, helping this woman deliver the baby as this woman goes through her labor um, and delivers the baby, right? A midwife is someone, by the way, whose job is to be present in suffering. Not easy. But she's someone who can be present. She's able to be present in suffering because she sees the big picture. Her eyes on the big picture. What if the church is called to be a spiritual midwife? What if we are called to attend to the labor pains of a suffering world in order to help usher in new life? And what if we are actually able to do that? What if we're able to sustain a vibrant expression of joy and hope in the midst of a world that is dying because we have seen the empty tomb? because we have been spoken to by the resurrected Jesus and because he has sent us to go and bear witness to what we have seen. There's a picture that I want to share with you from the Gospel of John that Jesus gives that has become for me a key, and I think he gave it for his disciples to see this as a key to understanding the bigger picture of the resurrection, his death and resurrection. So this is Jesus' own picture that he gives to the disciples of what's going on, what's really going on um, with his death and resurrection. It's a framework that he gives them to understand it. This is John 16, verses 20 through 22. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to joy, wonderful joy. It will be like a woman suffering the pains of labor. When her child is born, her anguish gives way to joy because she has brought a new baby into the world. So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Then you will rejoice and no one can can rob you of that joy. Are you picking up on what Jesus is doing here, right? He's letting the disciples know that like a woman in labor, their suffering is not forever, right? It won't be forever, and it will result. It will take them through to a joy that surpasses that suffering. But Jesus is also using this imagery to talk about his own suffering and death. He says, what is going to happen to me? This is a picture of it, right? This image he uses, uh, it... Um, 
is very deliberately an image of childbirth. And by the way, it's not the first time in the scriptures that this connection is drawn between childbirth and resurrection, resurrection and childbirth. I wonder if in the back of his mind, Jesus was hearing echoes of Isaiah or thinking of Isaiah, the prophet, who says in Isaiah 26, as a pregnant woman about to give birth writhes and cries out in pain, so were we in your presence, O Lord. We were with child, we writhed in labor, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought about salvation to the earth, and the people of the world have not come to life, but your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. And we know that this uh, imagery actually threads through the letters of Paul. When in Romans, Paul, and I wonder if Paul was thinking about Jesus' words um, to his disciples, when Paul says, we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Well, I think whenever we're reading scripture, it's always a good thing to look for patterns. So we're seeing a pattern here, right, in scripture of this, of this imagery. But I also want us to look at a linguistic pattern for just a moment. There's this phrase that Jesus uses in this, um, in this, in this passage where he's talking to the disciples that, uh, that actually comes up quite a bit um, in the Gospels. And so he uses this phrase when he's talking about the woman who's um, in labor. He says, it's, her time has come. That's how, that's how we know she's like entering labor, right? She's about to give birth. Her time has come. In older translations, it's her hour has come. Does that sound like familiar language? If you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that Jesus has used that phrase before. For instance, he uses it in John 7 when um, his brothers are trying to get him to go to Jerusalem. And, and he's, he's not going to Jerusalem um, because he knows what's going to happen to him eventually in Jerusalem. And, he's not, and that's not, he's, the time hasn't come. And he says... My time, my, my hour has not yet come. And so um, uh, later we see him use this in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Uh, Mark, the gospel writer, says that Jesus fell on his face and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Uh, later, of course, Jesus is arrested in the garden. And what does Jesus say? My hour has come. So when we hear that phrase, my hour has come, what is Jesus referring to? He's referring generally to his passion, to his suffering and his death. But here in this moment where he's telling the disciples what's really happening, uh, and he describes it as childbirth, he's talking about a woman whose hour has come. Do you see how he's conflating these two things? He's painting a picture of death that completely turns death inside out and reframes it as birth. There's a lot of hope there. I'd like to share a story with you. Um, this is a story about my own, uh, from my own journey in thinking about death. Um, as a Christian, uh, I've always had a lot of just general trust that when I die, God will take care of me. Um, my sin is forgiven. I will be with God. Uh, I don't really know a lot more than that, but I don't really need to know a lot more than that. Um, so I've had this sort of generic trust, but a f number of years ago, that generic trust just did not seem like enough. 
it, it wasn't a tested trust. It was just a generic trust. It felt thin. It felt weak. It didn't answer my questions. I had so many questions. So for maybe the better part of a year, I found myself thinking a lot about what happens when we die. Uh, I studied the scriptures. I uh, listened to a lot of sermons and sermon series and re- read books and I used my imagination and I kind of just lived with this underlying anxiety around that and didn't find a lot of answers. I found some things to think about. They were interesting to think about, but they didn't they didn't heal that anxiety that I had. And so here's what I found myself praying. Actually, I wanted to pray, Lord, would you just show me the answers? <laughs> I just want all the answers to all these questions. Just show me the answers. But I knew I knew that was didn't feel like a God uh, a prayer God was inviting me to pray. I felt like that these are questions that we don't have answers to on this side of eternity. And so here's what I prayed, and I feel like God gave me this prayer to pray. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where God gives you a prayer that you need uh, to pray. And my prayer was this, God, would you show me how you want me to think about death? Would you show me how you want me to think about it? And God answered my prayer. One day, just an ordinary day, I was sitting at uh, the living room table working on something. I don't remember what I was working on. I was just daydreaming um, at some point, kind of my mind just started to wander. And um, not thinking about this topic specifically, but with that undercurrent of that anxiety sort of there. And this image that was very vivid just came to mind. And it was an image of a woman giving birth. Um, and I knew I knew that this was God's answer for my question about how he wanted me to think about death. But I also knew that there was a gift to unpack. Like, what does that mean? And so as I began to think about it, I realized, you know, a baby exiting its mother's womb from the perspective of the baby is dying, right? (laughs) It is dying. The moment of birth for that baby is the end of the world as that baby knows it. But little does that baby know the life that is ahead, right? And here's the thing that stood out to me the most in that metaphor, that image that came to my mind. And this is what really healed my anxiety. And it really did heal my anxiety. When a baby is born, is it born into a void? Is it dropped to the ground? No. There's someone to receive that baby. There's someone to catch it and to care for it. The baby um, is even helped into this world, right? Because the baby is born into relationship. The baby is born into a love story. And friends, you and I are born into a love story. It's the love story of our creator and redeemer. And that love story will carry us through. And that's good news. But as we wrap up, I have some more good news for us. And that is this. Resurrection starts now, right? It doesn't start at death. It starts now. It begins in this life. God has made available to us resurrection life as we um, learn to die to self first and learn to die to uh, the things of the world that distract us and keep us from God. As we learn to die to our sinful nature, we uh, experience the resurrection life. Um, And this is the way Paul says it in Ephesians 2. He says, even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. 
For he raised us from the dead. He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Did anyone catch what verb tense this is? What is it? Past tense. That's really significant here, right? This is past tense. There's a sense in which the work of resurrection has already started to be accomplished in our lives. We get to step into it. We don't have to wait till we die to know the reality of resurrection. Today, even now, God is inviting us into new life. As we, um, as we sing our final song today, I have an invitation for us. You might have noticed this table here up front with some baskets on it. In these baskets are, are strips of cloth. Now, this, these strips of cloth were cut from the cloth that was draped on the communion tables at Easter. I don't know if you were with us for Easter and if you noticed the cloth on the communion tables, but that cloth was there to represent the grave clothes of Jesus that were left behind when he uh, rose from the dead. And by the way, this beautiful piece of art that Luann created, which is called Easter Tide, and there's a an artist statement beneath it, if you care to come up and read it, um, was also inspired by the idea of the grave clothes left behind. But today, we are reassigning, we are, we are assigning uh, these cloths a new uh, meaning. Today, they become swaddling cloths, right? Because if death in Christ is actually a kind of birth, then Jesus' tomb is a womb, his grave clothes are actually swaddling clothes. So maybe today you're here, uh, maybe you're not a follower of Christ, but you're realizing maybe he has something to say to me. Maybe he's inviting you to uh, leave behind the old, old ways of, of self first, um, to receive his forgiveness, his love, his dream for your life, to hear him call you for the first time, friend, brother, sister. Um, if that's you, I invite you to come forward during this last song and take a strip of that cloth and let that strip remind you of the gift of new life that God is giving you this morning and every day as you look to him. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus but maybe your framework for thinking about death is weak and not enough to keep the voices of fear at bay. Jesus gave to his disciples and he gives to us, he gives to you a radical and a radically beautiful framework for thinking about death. And I invite you to come forward and to take a strip of cloth and let that cloth represent to you a new way of thinking about death, a new framework where death becomes birth and where grave clothes become swaddling bands. And finally, maybe God is inviting you this morning to step into your role as a midwife. You live in a dying world, but you are able to see the suffering in this world for what it is, labor pains. God wants to use you like he used the women who were witnesses at the tomb. If this is you, I invite you to come forward and to take a strip of the cloth as a way of saying, yes, Lord, I will be a midwife to what you are doing in this world. I will be a midwife to your redemptive work.
So let's pray, and then I'll invite the I'll invite the band up to to as I pray, and let's pray, and then as the band is leading us in our final song, as you're led, as you're comfortable, as you are willing, um, you're welcome to come and to take um, to take a strip of of the swaddling cloth that represents um, the birth that we are all invited into. Lord of life. We thank you for the story of the women at the empty tomb and for their witness and their bearing witness. Lord, you made a way for them to peer into that empty tomb. You rolled away the stone so that they could see the grave clothes, Lord. You make a way for us as well in countless ways to see that the tomb is empty. You are making us witnesses to the resurrected Christ. And so we pray that you would heal us of our waywardness, of our walking away from you, Lord, and your and the things of you. May we hear you call our names. May we hear you call us brother and sister and know once again that you love us and that we are at the very center of your loyal love, your affection, no matter what we have said or done or not done. Lord, we live in a world that groans under the curse of sin and death. And we long for the day when our bodies and our world will be made new and the creation itself will be made new. And we thank you, Lord, that we can cling to this promise with hope. Even in the face of death, we have hope because you conquered death for us, because you loved us so much that you would willingly suffer it for our sake. We pray that you would free us from the grip of fear and usher us into a living hope. We pray that we would live into that hope and that we would be uh, courageous to step into your invitation as midwives, midwives to the redemption that you are accomplishing in our suffering world around us. Make us to be people who are present to what you are doing and those around us. Give us eyes to see the suffering around us as labor pains. And we pray that you would redeem our own suffering, O Lord, because we come with our own suffering. Oh, Lord, we pray that that suffering would lead to a joy that cannot be taken away. And we thank you that that is the promise. That is our inheritance in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're listening to the official podcast of Church of the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church of the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at www.wellchurchvt.com.